All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. In the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A a new teaching with authority. It commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I like reading thrillers. You know, spy stuff, international intrigue, plots to take over the world, you know, that kind of stuff. When I first started reading thrillers back in the 80s, I mean, you could be pretty sure who the enemy was going to be. It was during the Cold War, so I mean, every time you picked up a book by Robert Ludlum or Tom Clancy, I mean, you knew the antagonist was, uh, was going to have a name like Boris or Vladimir or something. And that the action would be driven by some intricate plot to tip the balance of power in favor of Soviet-style communism. There's a lot of roaming around in the dark, in cold countries, trying to avoid the people who might capture you and drag you off to a dank cell in the Lubyanka, followed by a quick execution if you're lucky, or an extended and anonymous stay in a frozen gulag somewhere in Siberia. They're busting rocks and trying to keep your toes from snapping off like frozen green beans. Spy novels used to mean something. Freedom and democracy hung in the balance, am I right? But then the the Berlin Wall fell, and thriller writers were left without the necessary kind of moral ballast offered by the evil empire. Soviets are gone, so what do you do now, right? But the 90s, they were a lot tougher on thriller writers. I mean, there was some dabbling with Japan as an emerging economic titan. Uh, of course, there, were the, there was the odd yarn about Central American drug cartels, but by and large, the 90s were a tough time for spy novels. I mean, we just didn't know who we were supposed to hate. We sensed the looming threat of the Middle, Eastern, uh, the Middle Eastern terrorism, but I mean, even through the late 90s, we figured that that was pretty small potatoes compared to the potential instability in places like Russia. 
But then, of course, came September 11th. A terrible tragedy, but it, it certainly helped us sort of refocus our hatred. We didn't have the evil empire anymore, but uh, thank goodness we had a new enemy. One that's uh, easily identifiable enough and foreign enough for the general population to get behind a, a, a new other upon which to project our own insecurities. We got, instead of the evil empire, now we have the axis of evil. But see, this new enemy was pretty slippery. I mean, we already hated terrorism. We'd lived through the guerrilla warfare of Vietnam, after all, and, and the, the, the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut in 83, the first bombing of the World Trade Center in 93, and then, of course, Oklahoma City, uh, the bombing in 1995. You know, people sort of sneaking up on you, attacking you when you least expected it. But the problem was, as well-meaning but uh, soft, uh, soft-headed liberals often pointed out, Terrorism is a, is a tactic employed by an enemy. The, 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 the terrorism can't be the enemy. You, can, you can't defeat terrorism with guns and bombs any more than you can defeat racism or homophobia by killing all the racists and homophobes. But obviously, we, Russia's, we needed a stand-in. So fortunately for us, we found a, a, a ready placeholder in Islam. Islam is different and, and, and veiled and, and scary. We, we even made up bone-chilling names to place it well within the scope of acceptable things to hate. Names like Islamic fascism and radical Islam or Islamic extremism. And we kind of saw the wink when our leaders said that those names didn't apply to all Muslims, just, you know, the, the scary ones. The publishing industry breathed a great sigh of relief. The thriller genre was back in business. I mean, we had new people to be afraid of now, new enemies to populate our nightmares. Now, now the guys had, uh, bad guys had names like, um, you know, Ahmed or Hussein. It became okay to look at every Muslim as a potential threat, which, which of course justified our denying them zoning permits to build their places of worship, or our suspicions gave permission to certain benighted souls to discriminate, discriminate and profile a whole new group of people based on their appearance and their religious commitments. Now this new permission that allowed us to hate Islam also permitted us to take some parts of their faith and twist them to suit our own prejudices. Jihad, for instance. Jihad, which we mistranslate as holy war. That's a good example. When we hear jihad, we, we, we conjure up pictures of wild-eyed terrorists wearing suicide vests to crowded cafes or on busy downtown buses. And while there are, are some Muslims who do just that sort of thing under the banner of jihad, mainstream Islam doesn't see the holy concept of jihad that way at all. Jihad actually means something like striving. The prophet Muhammad said that there are two kinds of jihad. There's the greater jihad and the lesser jihad. 
The greater jihad, Muhammad said, was a personal, it's a personal and individual sort of struggle against one's lower nature, waging a war against your own sin, which is actually kind of scary if you really stop and start thinking about what that might entail. That's the greater jihad. The lesser jihad, on the other hand, revolves around exerting effort to protect the way of God against the forces of evil. Now, admittedly, the lesser jihad can induce, uh, can include violence because Islam does not claim to be pacifist after all, but, but, but I mean, even here, violence is never the first resort. In fact, Muhammad said that the preferred form of a jihad is a word of truth spoken in the presence of a tyrant. That's the real jihad. A word of truth spoken in the presence of a tyrant. I like that. And we sometimes call it uh, speaking truth to power, right? That's good stuff. Nonviolent movements are predicated on it. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, speaking truth in the presence of a tyrant, just words, sacrifice, no violence. But it's a tough sell, I got to tell you. In our culture, we are much more inclined to want to be proactive about things, right? Being proactive in the face of a threat often implies that there is a threat itself of violence. Hard to run a country without it. I got, uh, got the ball rolling on this muscular foreign policy back in 1980s, you remember? We projected a, a philosophy that emboldened the nation which was really kind of writhing in the self-recrimination uh, following Vietnam. You, you, you want to have a military that's so big, the thinking goes, and so scary that nobody would ever want to mess with it. Power. Unmitigated, accessible, lightning fast and thunderously tough. Shock and awe, baby. Power. I mean, that's the way the world operates. But of course, it's always operated that way, hadn't it? I mean, the appropriate application of power has always been the preferred way to retain the status quo or bring about a new status quo, maybe even a new form of government if some of the most frightened people get their way. Got to hit them hard, hit them fast. And Jesus, he knew that, knew how the world works, which is why Mark's introduction of Jesus seems so so odd, so counterintuitive. Because if you remember in Mark's gospel, Jesus just sort of shows up out of nowhere. Well, not out of nowhere exactly. He comes from Nazareth of Galilee, which is the next village over from nowhere in the ancient Near East. Galilee was the heart, interestingly enough, of revolutionary sentiments against Roman occupation at the time. A, a place where the violent overthrow of the Roman Empire in Judea and Palestine was actively plotted. But, I mean, even for all that, it was still a backwater. And when Jesus shows up in Mark's gospel, he's, he's immediately baptized, if you remember. He's acknowledged as the Son of God, and then he's 
quickly dispatched into the wilderness where he meets up with Satan. Now, in, in Mark, unlike in Matthew and Luke, we're not told the substance of the encounter between Jesus and Satan. We don't know what the temptations were, at least in Mark's gospel. All we know is that Jesus is tempted, and that that temptation apparently took a lot out of him because it had to be attended to, uh, he had to be attended to by angels afterward. But whatever the details of the encounter with Satan in the wilderness, we get a sense of the nature of that encounter from the first words he speaks in Mark's gospel following the temptation. After recovering from his ordeal, facing down old scratch, Jesus presents his ministry in this way. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. That is to say, Jesus, in his first act after being announced as the Son of God, throws down with Satan and emerges from it, proclaiming that one kingdom has been overthrown and a new realm has been established. And though Jesus seems to have been physically exhausted, in a new twist on geopolitics, it appears as though this revolution was accomplished without violence. As if to highlight the power of Jesus' words, the next thing he does is he calls his first disciples. Now, notably, Jesus fails to sell the disciples on the virtues of following him. I mean, there's no extended sales pitch, no hard-charging emotional appeals. All it takes is Jesus saying, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And Mark says, and immediately they followed they left their nets and they followed him. You see that? I mean, it's just a few words out of the mouth of Jesus. Whole worlds are turned upside down, right? No arm twisting, no coercion, just two words, follow me. And immediately, they hit the sawdust trail. Now, all of that brings us to our passage for this morning because Jesus takes these newly minted disciples to Capernaum, just up the road, and they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it is there that Jesus proceeds to comment on the scripture. The text says, they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Next, a, young, a man with a, an unclean spirit starts yelling in church. What are you doing? Have you come to destroy us? And Jesus, for his part, once again comes at Satan's minions armed with only just a few words. And he says, be silent. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. <laughs> it's just a couple of words, right? Be silent and come out of him. Jesus talks. Unclean spirits are ripped, screaming from their lairs. And ordinary, everyday, unsuspecting folks are astounded and amazed. They were all amazed, the text says. And they kept asking one another, what is this? That's a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. See, Jesus opens his mouth and amazes everybody. But the question that we have to ask is why? Why is it that everybody's amazed? Well, of course, the obvious answer is that Jesus casts out demons with his words. 
Well, that's kind of a big deal, right? No question about that. But the truth is that exorcism wasn't a new thing. It, wasn't a, it was a known phenomenon at the, that time in the ancient Near East. What was especially noteworthy about this exorcism, but was more subtle, however, is where it happened. Because remember, where is Jesus again? He's in the synagogue. Well, but so what? Well, a demon-possessed man would have been considered unclean, which is to say he shouldn't have been anywhere near the synagogue. And Jesus, who apparently had the floor, should have told the trespasser to just get lost. Should have called for security, had him bounced. I mean, it's the synagogue after all, which admittedly is sort of more like a community room at the Capernaum City Hall than a modern worship space, but it's still a public space that they use on the Sabbath for, uh, for studying Torah. It, it's the place where the local cable access uh, would have live-streamed political town hall events. Right? The local religious authorities, the scribes, but they, they couldn't stand by and tolerate the kinds of shenanigans that are posed by this guy carrying a, a demon around inside of him who's you know, busy playing, doing CrossFit on his soul. He, it, there's no way that they can allow this to happen. But casting out demons in front of the local religious political authorities in what was supposed to be a religious political space, as it turns out, is an implicit criticism of that power. The casual insinuation inherent in this act of Jesus casting out the demons in the synagogue is that the scribes and the demons possess uh, peoples both, the scribes and the demons, they possess people and territories that belong to God. Chad Myers argues that when Jesus casts out a demon in the synagogue, he's standing up to religious leaders and the way they do things. By casting out the demons, Jesus shows everyone that he brings a new way of leading and healing people, one that's different from the reigning power structures. See, because it's a showdown between Jesus' vision of a new world and the old world where a few get to keep a boot on the neck of the many. It's Jesus and the devil in the wilderness all over again. See, now, he should have just told the guy to hit the bricks. But instead, what does he do? He speaks some words, casts out the demons, and in so doing, he announces all over again that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Without any violence, Jesus once again speaks, throwing over the reign of Satan and his earthly minions, and he establishes the reign of God, a battle that's on a cosmic scale taking place right in this little community room. It's easy, right? It's simple, straightforward. Jesus topples the kingdom of, of Satan. That's good. That's real nice, preacher. I mean, thanks for letting us in on that. Doesn't make any practical difference in our lives, but, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to know in case we're on jeopardy. Uh, you thought that was it. I'm sorry. No, there's more. Jesus' authority, according to this text, extends beyond the celestial realm. 
beyond the angels and demons and the harps and all that stuff. But what do I mean? Well, when Jesus exercises the demons, thereby healing an unclean man in the synagogue, he announces by that act that the rules on earth have changed. Jesus throws open the doors to welcome the broad swath of humanity that has been systematically excluded from these places. These spaces where religion and politics seem to rule. They've been, kicked, they've been kept out. The blind, the debilitated, the unclean, the poor, the forgotten, the homeless, the sick, the mentally ill, all those whom the religious establishment has successfully kept out, Jesus just speaks a few words and lays waste to the little kingdoms of those who had always assumed they were supposed to retain power through excluding other people. It's just like the prophet Muhammad said, a word of truth in the presence of tyranny. And the amazing thing about it is Jesus never fires a shot. He speaks and kingdoms topple. Why? Because Jesus speaks as one with authority. And it's a new kind of authority. He speaks the truth always with love. Jesus is, according to this definition, a faithful jihadist who squares off against the powers that preserve injustice. He squares off against those powers, the powers that privilege certain classes of worthy people, gives access to those people it considers worthy while excluding the powerless and the disadvantaged. That's what Jesus is up against. That's what realm God is unleashing on the world, one that will face. Face down the tyranny. And we, we're who trying to follow him. We don't get to excuse ourselves from the messiness of it either. We don't get to stand by silently while some folks get kicked to the back of the bus or dragged kicking and screaming back across the border or singled out for the bathrooms that they use. We have our own tyrants before whom we need to speak. Our ability to stand before the evil empires of exclusion and hatred relies not on our ability to wage war, but on our commitment to speak truthfully about the kind of love that refuses to let anybody stand alone, crying out in pain. Why? Why though? Why? Why has it got to be more than that? Because, because we who follow Jesus follow one who died alone, crying out in pain. And we're determined not to let it happen anymore.
Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.